Welcome to the latest Schneps Connects podcast. This is your host, Josh Schneps. Today we have on our show U.S. Congresswoman Grace Meng, who's serving her fifth term in the U.S. House of Representatives. Grace represents the 6th Congressional District of New York, which encompasses the borough of Queens, including the west, central, and northeast part of the borough. Grace is the first and only Asian American member of Congress from New York State. She has fought to expand opportunities for communities of color, young people, and women, and has secured resources to help local small businesses. She was born in Elmhurst, Queens, and raised in Bayside and Flushing sections of the borough. She attended local schools and graduated from Stuyvesant High School and the University of Michigan. Since then, earned a law degree from Yeshiva University's Benjamin Cardoza School of Law. Grace currently resides in Queens with her husband, Wayne, and two sons, Tyler and Brandon. It's great to have you with us, Congress member. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's my pleasure. So um, prior to serving in Congress, you were a member of the New York State Assembly. And then before that, you were a public interest lawyer. So I'd love you to just share with our audience a little bit about yourself and your background and really what got you into public service. So my path to politics is so unconventional. Whenever I talk to young people and I love talking to high school and college age kids and they ask me how I got into politics, um, it's never what they expected. I never took a political science class ever. I never ran for even student government. Um, And I had never even been to a local democratic political meeting. Um, I was pretty clueless about politics. Um, But I did go to law school. I had uh, a lot of, uh, I took a lot of internships within uh, government agencies at the federal and at the state level. And I was really fascinated by government. I thought it was a really exciting way when used correctly to be able to help people. And the number of people and the policies that you can impact on a large scale was amazing um, to me to see. And also that there just weren't a lot of people that looked like me in politics when I was in those rooms. There weren't a lot of uh, women of color. There weren't a lot of women, period. Um, And so I went to law school and realized that, you know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something in the public interest world, not knowing exactly what that meant. Um, And, you know, after volunteering for a few campaigns here and there, Uh, Freddie Ferrer was the first political campaign I volunteered for. Mm -hmm. Uh, He ran for mayor, as you remember. Um, And I really thought that, wow, like politics is a great way to help people. Um, And so, you know, no real plan, but that's where I ended up. Well, I have to tell you, I think internships are the, the greatest thing for, you know, young people coming through college to figure out what they want to do. I remember I wanted to be a sports agent until I had the internship and figured out that was not for me. So it's interesting to hear how your internship, you know, really forged your future. Yeah, it's it's just as important to know what you might want to do and how you can eliminate fields that you thought you wanted to, you know, be part of. Absolutely. So we know it's been a tough year for everybody. And, you know, from a legislative standpoint, dealing with COVID has kind of uh, brought out the best and sometimes the worst in people, unfortunately. And I think, you know, it's it's been pretty prevalent, some anti-Asian sentiment that's run um, across the city, across the country, unfortunately. And, you know, maybe this isn't so new, but maybe more highlighted 
because of um, the pandemic that we're in now? Because I know that you passed legislation in the past, including striking the word oriental through federal law. Um, but you've been very outspoken on this issue, which I think is critical because I don't think it can be something that's tolerated. But tell us about your recent work in regards to, to taking on this issue. Sure. Well, first, let me say that New York and especially the borough of Queens has really been hit hard by the pandemic. Mm. We were, if you remember, literally the first ones at the epicenter of this epicenter across the nation. My colleagues from all over the country saw images of our hospitals in Queens, such as Elmhurst, um, they saw the lines around the block. They saw the trucks with refrigerated um, morgues uh, inside of them. And so the whole country knows about Queens and what we went through. Elmhurst Hospital at one point had volunteers, they told me, from every single state in the nation. Um, and this year has been tough. You know, there are stories, unspeakable stories about what has happened to so many families across New York and across this country. Um, we have really witnessed a lot of heartbreak, whether it's um, deaths and sicknesses that have um, happened to families, families who've lost jobs, families who can't pay their rent and their mortgages, families who've had you know, their small businesses shut down. So New York um, is really working hard to pick itself up from its feet back on his feet. Um, and before the, the pandemic really hit us here in New York, we were already starting to see incidents of, you know, bias and discrimination towards Asian Americans. There is a lot of misinformation out there. You know, I don't want to be political, but it doesn't help when the then president of the United States uses terms like Chinese virus and Kung mm -hmm. flu. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of misinformation. People thought if you went to a Chinese takeout restaurant that you would catch COVID, you know? And so the first incident that was, I think, reported happened here in New York, where a woman was attacked on the subway, blaming her for, you know, bringing COVID to the United States. So a lot of incidents like that. There have been over 3,000 incidents reported across the country. And we know that there are a lot more that have not been recorded. Um, and so we really just, you know, we want to use this up as an opportunity. We want to use it as an, a teaching moment for different communities to come together, to work together, to show support for each other. Last year, Congress passed my resolution to condemn anti-Asian uh, sentiment uh, during COVID-19. And I was so touched with the tremendous support that we got from so many colleagues. Um, colleagues from the Black Caucus, the Hispanic Caucus, the Women's Caucus, uh, Native American members. Um, and then, you know, soon after, around uh, last year as well, we saw, you know, a lot of protests following the murders of Americans like George Floyd. And so we witnessed uh, a sort of a reckoning in this country of a sort of racial justice, many issues that haven't been discussed before. And for one of the first times in my life, I've had really difficult discussions within my own family and within my own circles. So I want our country to use this as a teaching moment. We want to talk about racism and address racism that comes um, towards our communities, but also it's a good opportunity to address racism that may exist within our own networks as well. 
That's great to hear. I mean, listen, not to mention that you represent one of the most diverse uh, you know, groups of neighborhoods in the world, but the whole borough, the whole city is really, you know, an immigrant city. And I think, you know, everyone has to live together and it can't be tolerated. So, you know, it's great that you're taking a um, strong action on that. We talked a little bit about you obviously, you know, breaking the ceiling as, as a female and, and a working mother. And certainly um, working mothers have been very impacted um, due to COVID, um, particularly, you know, having to watch after their kids learning at home. Um, many have been forced to leave the workforce, you know, just to take care of the day-to-day -day things with their children during the pandemic. So talk to me a little bit about um, the Marshall Plan for Moms legislation that you're working on and what that would mean for uh, women in your district and throughout the city. So I'm really excited to introduce this Marshall Plan for Moms. Um, moms are literally screaming for help. Moms who are the people that so many people turn to in their times of need, they have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to turn to and they need help. And COVID this past year of this pandemic, COVID has highlighted so many of the uh, inequities that exist in our infrastructure here in the United States. Um, One million moms have left the workforce. Wow. We have lost decades of progress for moms, for women in this past year, in just one year alone. We need to really um, continue to work on and build upon the progress and we, we, we just did a lot through the American Rescue Plan, which infuses about $40 billion back into the childcare industry, which is so important um, and is crucial for women being able to go back to work and, and continue on their careers if they choose to. Um, but we need uh, a stronger infrastructure. We need real paid family leave, like almost every other developed nation has. Um, we don't have a real plan federally in this country. We need more universal childcare. Um, we need um, families to be able to have their know that their children are taken care of and that they're safe and they're healthy. And so our Marshall Plan for Mom is a resolution that establishes that framework. And most importantly, uh, is a good starting point for ensuring that issues and concerns facing moms around this country are front and center. We have a unique opportunity right now as we are headed out of this pandemic to rebuild our childcare industry and to make sure that, that moms are a priority. You know, we talked about the diversity of, of New York City and it's not just uh, ethnic, it's, it's very much religious uh, diversity as well. I mean, you probably can find you know, um, every single type of religion in, in the five boroughs of New York City. Um, and a lot of them serve many purposes, right? It's not just religion, it's educational as well. Um, so I, I would love to hear, you know, what kind of legislation you worked on on behalf of those houses of worship um, and, you know, what type of funding we can expect to see um, to support those kind of entities. Sure. There are so many houses of worship in my district. I'm so fortunate to represent such a diverse district. If you just drive around, you know, within 20, 30 minutes, uh, you will be able to visit a synagogue, uh, a Hindu temple, uh, a Catholic church, um, a Buddhist temple, you name it. 
you know, and so I started to do some work to help these um, organizations, specifically after Superstorm Sandy. After Sandy hit New York, we realized that houses of worship were not entitled to receive any sort of disaster funding from FEMA. So even if you're, you know, a Catholic charities and you run a homeless shelter and a food pantry, um, you were not allowed to get FEMA money. And so after many years, we finally got legislation signed into law. And what we saw during COVID were that these houses of worship who serve people beyond their religion uh, are able to get federal disaster money um, when, they, when it's needed. Um, and we've also worked a lot through my committee, which is the Appropriations Committee, to get funding to help boost the security for their congregants. Any house of worship, any non-for-profit could apply for these funds. Um, these funds literally go towards protecting uh, the congregants, um, beefing up the security of, of your church building, for example. We just had a break-in um, a few days ago of a local synagogue. And because of the equipment that this synagogue uh, had received through this grant, we were able to see everything um, and you know catch the perpetrator. So, you know, these are some monetary ways that we've been able to provide support for our local diverse houses of worship. That's terrific. You know, one of the things I absolutely love about your district is that it really is full of small business. Yeah. Especially downtown Flushing. I mean, downtown Flushing, for those who haven't been there, you know, pre-pandemic and hopefully soon post-pandemic is one of really the busiest thoroughfares in New York City. I mean, it probably is right there behind Times Square in terms of foot traffic and, and hubs of transportation, buses, subway, Long Island Railroad, uh, but tremendous number of small businesses, the best food you could have, especially dim sum. So, you know, small business, I mean, this has been probably the biggest impact that any of them have ever seen. So talk to me a little bit about what's going on with small business. Obviously, there's a piece of legislation coming through, but, but what can you say to small business owners um, to get through this period of time? Yeah, well, you actually hit the nail on the, on the head. It is literally the second most congested uh, intersection, Main Street and Roosevelt, in the entire city after that Times Square to Port Authority um, area in Manhattan. So literally, it is the second most congested. Um, we have seen our small businesses suffer so much. I think our state controller, Dinapoli, um, produced a report saying that about 50% of our small businesses and restaurants might not ever recover. They might not ever come back. Um, I want to thank the people of Queens and New York and across the country because during COVID, when so many businesses were struggling and being shut down, we had entrepreneurs, we had small business owners and employees too weigh in telling us what kind of legislation Congress needed to pass to help them. And even when Congress passed legislation, they told us what further what we needed to do to make that legislation more effective because it wasn't really reaching our mom and pop shops, you know, back uh, in the beginning of this pandemic. So we've all heard of programs like the PPP programs, EIDL. Um, we just expanded support in this in this latest latest uh, COVID relief package that will soon get signed into law. Um, but one thing I want to note is that throughout. New York City, and we just opened one about a year and a half or two years ago, 
um, we have something called a small business development center. So I secured funding uh, for a small business development center to be opened in my district. It's right on the campus of Queens College. It is a free resource that entrepreneurs to longtime small business owners can literally go for help. They have staff, uh, multilingual staff, and we want people to take advantage of it. They are doing great work. And so we opened that, you know, about a year before the pandemic. And it really came in handy because we had so many people work with that center to help apply for loans and grants at the city to federal level. That's a great asset that business people should know about. That's terrific. You know, staying on the topic of COVID, I feel like there's probably, you know, several obstacles being in New York City, again, particularly in Queens, particularly in your district, is communication, right? It's one thing to let them know the importance and safety of getting vaccinated, another where to go or, you know, what the process is, you know, right now it's the two shots, hopefully with Johnson Johnson will just be one shot. But how do you communicate that? And also, what else is on the horizon for Queens in terms of, you know, more accessibility to, to the vaccines? So I'll start backwards because that has really uh, been troubling me for, for weeks and months now. We don't have enough vaccination sites in my district and in Queens. And we've all read about how many people from across the state come into the few sites that we do have in New York City and Queens um, to, to use up our vaccines. Um, and so we are pushing for more sites. Some of my areas in my congressional district with uh, the higher COVID positivity rates are in downtown Flushing, in mm -hmm. Richmond Hill, and in the Glendale, Middle Village, Ridge, uh, Ridgewood areas. Those have the highest positivity rates um, my whole district has, on average, a higher positivity rate than the statewide average. Um, and so we are pushing for more vaccination sites. We hope that there will be good news in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, obviously, as we sign, as President Biden signs this American Rescue Plan. So we are, we are hopeful and, and continue um, to push. Um, you talk about the diversity of my district. I, I really think that uh, I believe that I have one of the most diverse districts in the country, you know, hundreds of dialects being spoken every single day. It's a privilege, but also a challenge to reach everyone. There is no one method um, where I can reach a majority of my constituents. So I can send out a press release and, you know, I'm thankful for whatever mainstream uh, English media will cover it. But knowing that even if that happens, that there are so many more enclaves of my constituents who aren't getting that news. So we really try to do a combination, you know, it's print media, it's emails, it's distribution lists. It's a social media and even certain chat rooms where we have community leaders. We're saying, you know, can you put this information into your chat room um, and just trying to reach out as, as much as possible. So that is a constant challenge, um, but we are also fortunate to have so many ways to be able to reach uh, many of our constituents. Yeah, I think the one thing that everybody has to realize with this pandemic is we're all in it together. I mean, of course, everybody wants their own vaccine, but the, the end of this pandemic will only come when a large majority of us all have it. So it's really in our interest, you know, for everyone to 
understand the implications and have accessibility. Definitely, definitely. So it's been a it's been a tough past almost twelve months, right? I mean, literally, as we're speaking, it's almost a, literally the uh, the first day that I think we were close to shutting down our own offices and, and much of the city being shut down. But what do you see, Grace, in terms of the year ahead? What do you, what what can you see, particularly for your district? I mean, what what would you say is the outlook from from your standpoint for your district and and the borough of Queens? Um, I think that we will still spend a lot of the upcoming months. And you're right, it is, it's been exactly a year, March 7th, 2020. Mm -hmm. I remember I attended my last sort of public event. I went to a wedding and that was the last real time I was out in public with a large group of people. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we, we still, as we're coming out of um, this virus, even though our positivity rates in New York are much lower than it was even just a few months ago, there's still a lot of recovery. You know, we have over 500,000 Americans across this nation who have died. Um, people have lost their jobs. We need to give people the tools that they need to help get our economy um, back functioning and thriving again. That means helping our small businesses. That means helping our childcare industry, getting people back to work and getting kids back to school. We've talked about our children who are homeschooling and schooling you know, remotely right now. They've missed out on a full year of their life and their childhood. And so we need to make sure that we're doing whatever we can. And that includes internet access. What does the future of education, working and telehealth, what does that look like? A lot of the inequities that the people of Queens faced, they didn't you know, begin, start magically when COVID hit. They were inequities that existed before the pandemic. You know, you talk about Queens and the disproportionate lack of hospital beds that Queens families have to deal with. Um, our families literally had nowhere to go. And, you know, kudos to the hospitals for being able to take so many patients, people who trusted them um, to take care of them. Um, but that's something, you know, that's just one example of how we need to build back better, build back our infrastructure, build back our system, but in a better and more equitable and more accessible uh, way. I think those are all great points. And, and I want to thank you for fighting for those. You know, I was on a call with one of the major library systems in New York City, and it was very interesting to hear that they've made Wi-Fi not only available in the library, but surrounding the library 24 hours a day. And I asked them, well, it's cold out. And they said, people are outside the library in the evenings on their computers and phones using our Wi-Fi, Josh. And it blew my mind to really see, you know, the inequity that people really don't have access to the internet. And they rely on the Wi-Fi outside the library at night. It really breaks my heart. And, you know, Josh, I started working on this actually before the pandemic and people didn't fully understand. Most New Yorkers have Internet, but on a on a good day, the city controller did a report where 30 percent of New Yorkers don't have access to the Internet. This was pre-COVID. Um, I had learned about this issue because of some of my travel around the country for the Democratic National Committee. And I would go to, let's say, rural areas where they told me, you know, similarly, they would have to drive to like a fast food restaurant and sit in the parking lot to use their Internet to do their homework. Or, you know, they would have to go to a library on the day that 
hopefully it's open to be able to do their homework. I remember when my kids first started school, I, I said, you know, show me your textbook. And they laughed at me. They said, we don't have textbooks. Everything's online. Um, and so our kids, even before the pandemic, are, were not able to, we couldn't provide them a full education. 12 million kids on a good day had no access to the internet in this country. Um, and so we've, this is, has been one of my top priorities. We've got billions of dollars invested just in this last COVID bill to help get internet access in a more easier and accessible way to families and especially to our students. And that's something, and internet, it's a basic human right. It's like having electricity. It's like having water. There's no equity until everyone has access to the internet. Well, Congressmember Meng, it's been a pleasure having you on and, and thank you for your fighting on behalf of your district and all New Yorkers and keep fighting for us. Thank you. Thank you for all you guys do. Likewise. Please listen to the latest episode of Schneps Connects anywhere you get your podcasts. Click subscribe to automatically receive our weekly episodes or you can stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. <laughs>